Welcome to another edition of the ABI Podcast. I'm ABI resident scholar Jason Kilborn, the John Marshall Law School in Chicago. Joining us today is Professor William Black, Associate Professor of Economics and Law at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, to talk about his theory of control fraud and its implications for understanding the causes of and potential remedies for the mortgage meltdown. Professor Black is a white-collar criminologist. His most famous work is a 2005 book entitled The Best Way to Rob a Bank is to Own One. Professor Black's academic work is based on a long and illustrious career of intensely practical experience in the banking industry, including several years as a regulator. In the 1980s, he served as the litigation director of the Federal Home Loan Bank Board, deputy director of the Federal Savings and Loan Insurance Corporation, and general counsel of the Federal Home Loan Bank of San Francisco. In the early 1990s, he served as senior deputy chief counsel for the Office of Thrift Supervision, as well as deputy director of the National Commission on Financial Institution Reform, Recovery, and Enforcement. In 1996, Mr. Black became Professor Black, first for nearly a decade at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, then the Distinguished Scholar-in-Residence for Insurance Law at Santa Clara University, and the Executive Director of the Institute for Fraud Prevention, before finally joining UMKC a few years ago, where he specializes in political economy, including law and economics, public finance, regulation, and white-collar crime. Thank you, Professor Black, for joining us on the ABI podcast. Thank you for having me. You're most famous uh, for your theory of control fraud. Uh, Would you please describe your theory, especially as it relates to private financial firms like banks? Yes, it occurs when the people that control a seemingly legitimate entity use it as a weapon of fraud. And it can happen in the public sector, the for-profit sector, or the not-for-profit sector. And how do these control people use uh, their businesses to perpetrate this control fraud? Well, it varies by type of control fraud. There are different kinds. The, the ones that your listeners would be interested in the most is accounting control fraud. And accounting is the weapon of choice in finance. So that's the one that drives bankruptcies as well in the current crisis. Particularly as related to uh, mortgage fraud, fraud involving financial products, either, uh, either mortgages themselves or financial products derived from mortgages, it strikes me as though your control fraud theory has a particular application. How, how, would, how does your control fraud theory explain how uh, uh, the mortgage debacle has, uh, has, uh, has unfolded? Unfortunately, it has a lot to say about it. Uh, so uh, there is a recipe for a lender engaged in accounting control fraud that maximizes reported short-term income. And it's got four ingredients. One, grow like crazy. Two, make really crummy loans, but at a premium yield. Three, have extreme leverage. That just means really high debt-to-income ratio. And four, have next to nothing set aside in your allowance for loan and lease losses, which is called the all provision in accounting. If you do those four things, then you are mathematically guaranteed to report record profits in the near term. This is why the famous economists, George Akerlof and Paul Romer, in their 1993 article, uh, entitled it, Looting, 
the economic underworld of bankruptcy for profit. And so it drives the lender into bankruptcy through the massive losses, unless, of course, there's a bailout. But it also means because you're lending to people who characteristically will frequently be unable to repay the loan, that to the extent those are mortgage loans, people are going to lose their homes. And in America, if you can't pay your mortgage, you're, of course, a very good candidate for bankruptcy. Well, as you've described it, it sounds like uh, really nobody makes out very well from that kind of a of a of a system. Who who? What's in it for the perpetrator of this fraud? I mean, is, does somebody benefit somewhere? Yeah, the company, uh, of course, loses massively and dies unless it's bailed out. No, but uh, Akerlof and Romer's title, and of course the title of my book, both capture who wins, and that is bankruptcy. That's looting uh, in its bankruptcy for profit. So the controlling officers uh, profit immensely. They are made wealthy by this. And because it is a sure thing, as Akerlof and Romer emphasized, it doesn't require any business skills. Right? It's easy to follow this formula. So whereas only exceptionally skilled, honest CEOs can make a ton of money, um, anybody can make uh, a ton of money through fraud if they're able to get into a position to control the corporation. Before I read your work, as I have over the past several days, I was unaware, frankly, of the startling similarities between the current mortgage crisis we see now and the, and the SNL crisis of the 1980s. Uh, it struck me, at least as an amateur, that both cases involved the, the base problem of lending extended to borrowers who obviously couldn't or wouldn't pay, were unlikely to pay, as you said, uh, collateralized these loans by property with a value that, f- that was far lower than was reflected in purchased appraisals, and indeed property that was quite difficult uh, to, to appraise in any event, uh, that propped up reports of inflated and often imaginary profits, blessed by uh, accounting review, which really nobody could understand. Are we reliving history here, or is, the, or is it different this time somehow? Well, there are differences, and obviously this crisis is far worse than the savings and loan crisis, but the formula remains the same in terms of the recipe that I just went through. And so these crises do look very similar because they're optimizing fraud. And that very act of optimizing means that there are characteristic patterns to the frauds. And that, of course, is also a weakness because it allows us to identify the frauds at an earlier point and to successfully prosecute them. Uh, or at least it used to when we used to actually have regulators and prosecutors, um, but not so much uh, in the current era. Akerlof and Romer ended their article with a, a paragraph that said, you know, the savings and loan regulators recognized this pattern of how deregulation was leading to endemic fraud very early, uh, but they got no support because economists didn't understand the fraud mechanisms. Now that we can identify these fraud mechanisms, we can hope that we will avoid these crises. Well, that hope proved to, to fail. It's quite remarkable, even though we have the top criminologists on this subject matter in the world and the top economists on this subject in the world, Akerlof and Romer, 
in agreement, uh, all of that learning got lost during the current crisis. And so in many ways, this crisis was easier to stop. So what do I mean by that? Um, well, this crisis was obvious, right? They called the loans they were using behind closed doors liar's loans. And that got out to the press pretty early. In fact, if every mortgage lender in the country that was a member of the Mortgage Bankers Association, which is almost all of them, received that warning in writing in 2006. So the Mortgage Bankers Association sent to every one of their members uh, a report by the Mortgage Bankers Association anti-fraud experts who go by the acronym MARI. And MARI said three critical things. First, they say that these stated income loans are, and I'm quoting here, an open invitation to fraudsters. The second thing they say is we've done studies uh, and 90% of these stated income loans are fraudulent. 90%. And the third thing they say is, therefore, they deserve the term that the industry calls them behind closed doors, which is the liar's loans. Well, after this warning, and after the FBI's September 2004, note how early that was, September 2004, the FBI, in open House testimony, picked up by the national media, says that there is an epidemic of mortgage fraud, their phrase, and predicts that it will cause a financial crisis, crisis again being their phrase. So you get the FBI warning in 2004, then even the industry warns in 2006, and what happens? The number of liars' loans increases almost exponentially. It increases roughly 500% between 2003 and 2006 after these warnings. So you know that the people specializing in making liars' loans, these were fraudulent entities. Yeah, uh, along the lines of the the point that you made about optimizing the fraud and 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 folks knowing about these liars loans, you know, something that struck me uh, as a sort of particularly ramping up the at least potential fraudulent element here uh, is the role of securitization in all of this. You know, the 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 investment bankers packaging together and uh, securitizing and reselling uh, mortgage obligations backed by these uh, these garbage uh, mortgages. And your your mention of this lemon theory really uh, jumped out at me, uh, particularly in light of this story that you told in one of your uh, papers about uh, somebody. I think it was at Goldman uh, shorting synthetic CDOs that 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 were that were designed to fail, putting the worst possible combinations of mortgages in there, designing them to fail, and then hawking them as being sure to succeed. I mean, is that do I don't do I understand correctly what you had written? It struck me as just totally counterintuitive. Uh, you have it absolutely correct. Uh, and that is uh, John Paulson working with uh, Goldman Sachs, unbeknownst to the buyers of these securities. So the, the buyers of the securities are told, hey, here's a great opportunity. And actually, the, um, as much as possible, they picked the investment to blow up so that uh, Paulson and, uh, could bet on, take the opposite bet from the customers of Goldman Sachs. 
and so Goldman Sachs could unload a bunch of loser positions it had on its customers. So, yes, um, your overall question is an excellent one as well. I gave you the standard fraud recipe. And your earlier question also asked me, well, are there things that were different between the savings and loan crisis and this one? Yes, the savings and loan crisis was overwhelmingly commercial real estate. And so while that led to large numbers of bankruptcies, it was leading to typically corporate uh, bankruptcies. This one uh, is personal bankruptcies, and it adds a potential fifth ingredient. Now, this is a really interesting ingredient to economists and finance experts, because the fifth ingredient is sell these pervasively fraudulent loans that everybody knows are fraudulent to the most sophisticated financial players in the world. Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, Merrill Lynch, in particular, in those early years, 2003, 2004, 2005. These were the really big purchasers. And as your question further asked, what did they do with them? Well, to some extent, they simply held on to them because they used that premium yield to create their own accounting fraud. But usually they packaged them and created things called collateralized debt obligations, which were typically backed by these endemically fraudulent underlying mortgage loans. Now, why is that interesting to economists and finance types? Because under standard economic theory, that's impossible. Right, because they have every incentive and every ability to protect themselves. All they would have to look is at any sample of these loans, and they would recognize they were pervasively fraudulent. And again, we're talking about the most sophisticated financial parties in the world. So this is where all the neoclassical theory about the efficient market was found to be completely false. The entire hypothesis underlying all of modern finance was falsified by this crisis. Now, it had been falsified before, before, but you know nobody can doubt it now. Um, and that is a remarkable thing. Now, your listeners may think, well, of course they could sell it because then they wouldn't have any obligation. But that's not how this worked. Overwhelmingly, you First, you had to sell it under representations and warranties, or reps and warranties for short, that said these weren't fraudulent loans. And second, there were typically uh, pushback provisions where you could return the bad assets to the sellers. And so we have yet another key aspect of bankruptcy law and bankruptcy, and that is Every single one of the lenders that specialized in making liars loans failed or was bailed out. Well, it's hard to understand. Yeah, it's hard to understand how this pervasive fraud uh, was either misunderstood or ignored, uh, particularly in light of the putback provisions that you that you just mentioned. 
And, you know, I can hear the voices of these neoclassical economic naysayers saying, well, this guy is just a classic regulator, a man with a hammer for whom everything looks like a nail. He's captured by his own personal perspective, you know, rooting out fraud. You know, and do you really think that the CEOs of these banks involved, these really highly sophisticated folks, uh, securitizing subprime and alt-A mortgages were really engaging in fraud? Or do you think, you know, it's, do you think it's fair to cite rampant fraud as opposed to out-of-control risk-taking? You know, this eat-what-you-kill Wall Street mentality that, that's just blindly profit-driven. After all, you know, the argument, it seems to me, went that, you know, housing values may well continue their upward march almost indefinitely, even if these cash-strapped borrowers, you know, can't pay. It, you know, is, is there a compelling alternative perspective, or do you just think fraud is the only available explanation? No, we try for these alternative explanations, and indeed, liar's loans are a really good, what we in social science call, natural experiment, uh, to be able to test rival theories. So uh, one of the most important things to understand about risk is that markets do not simply reward risk. They only reward prudent risks. What do I mean by that? If I run a bank and you run a bank, and my bank is the bank of the inept, and so I can't tell the difference between high-risk folks and low-risk folks, so I charge everybody 15%. Your bank is the bank of the competent. And you can tell the difference between high risk and low risk. And so you charge low risk 10% and high risk 20%. Who's going to come to my bank? People who know they're not going to pay, I guess. Well, nobody who's a good credit risk, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. They can go to your bank and borrow at 10%. They yeah. can only borrow at my bank at 15%. So I get all the worst creditors. Right. Right. Um, uh, debtors, from my perspective. The worst credit risks, yeah. Worst credit risks. And that is called in economics and in insurance, where it happens as well, adverse selection. And everybody knows that in the mortgage loan context, if you engage in something that has substantial adverse selection, you will go bankrupt. It has a negative expected value. In other words, it is equivalent to going to Las Vegas and betting against the house. Now, that is a risk, but it is not a risk the markets will reward. Statistically, you will lose. Of course, there will be a few winners. But overwhelmingly, you will lose, and it isn't a matter of luck. At least as a system, it's not a matter of luck. We know that's how statistics work. Right, So we look for markers of things that only make sense for fraudulent institutions. Adverse selection is a classic example in mortgage lending that only a fraudulent institution would find useful. Again, why? Because it fits the recipe so well. So it will make the officers rich, but it will destroy the corporation. So when you see deliberate adverse selection, And there is no more deliberate adverse selection possible in lending than a liar's loan. So liar's loan says we're not going to underwrite this loan. Here's another classic marker, again, really useful to bankruptcy attorneys, and that is an inflated appraisal. An honest lender would never inflate an appraisal. 
because the appraisal is one of the two great protections against loss in the event of failure and bankruptcy, right? Straightforward. So, and it is really easy for lenders to prevent widespread appraisal fraud. And borrowers cannot conduct appraisal fraud, or at least it's incredibly rare that the borrower can do it. So this is something that comes from lenders and their agents. And two things have to come. One, the lender has to leak the purchase price of the home to the appraiser. And again, no honest lender would do that. And two, they, have, they, the lender, have to engage in adverse selection to get appraisers who would inflate appraisal amounts. Now, how was that done? We call that in economics a Gresham's dynamic, in which bad ethics drives good ethics out of the marketplace. And there is exceptionally good polling information, survey information, from appraisers that shows this was done and done endemically. And there is investigative evidence from then Attorney General Cuomo, now governor of the state of New York, who found that Washington Mutual, by far the biggest and baddest of these players, had a blacklist of appraisers. But you got on the blacklist if you refused to inflate the appraisal, if you refused to be a dishonest appraiser they kicked you out of making the appraisals. So uh, this is a theory, as you say, but people who aren't scientists you know, assume that that theory means something negative. Everything in science is a theory. Right? Um, this one has been tested to see did it have good predictive strength in the savings and loan crisis, in the Enron era crisis, in this crisis, in crises abroad, such as Ireland, and Iceland. And it's done superbly in its ability to predict. And it's done also the real-world test of we actually use this to identify the frauds at an early point, to investigate them, to prosecute them successfully, to bring civil suits against them successfully. So this is a theory that, at least to date, has withstood the test of time in different contexts, and has proven useful to attorneys in representing their clients. For example, you have strong arguments in terms of fraud in the inducement in a number of these cases. So if I inflate the appraisal, you can imagine an unsophisticated borrower coming in and being worried, well, you know, I'm not sure I can actually make the payments on buying a house like this. This is, a, say, a first-time purchaser. And you going, but uh, the appraisal came back, and you bought the house for four hundred thousand, but we're appraising it for four hundred and eighty thousand. So even if you get in trouble with the monthly payments, you can simply turn around at any point and sell the house for a profit. But if that appraisal's been inflated by a hundred thousand dollars, you've just induced via fraud a borrower. You know, that problem of, of, of inflated appraisals uh, strikes me as particularly salient and, and really troubling contrast with the SNL uh, 
problem in the, in the 1980s. As you described, one of the one of the most essential distinctions is that the SNL crisis was largely non-residential property, commercial property, whereas now the victims, the real victims, uh, are the owners of residential property. And uh, bankruptcy is designed not specifically not to be able to deal with the latter problem. You know, you, you might be able to get at the proper valuation of commercial property in a bankruptcy case, uh, but you can't do that in a consumer case, given the restrictions on Chapter 13 and the anti-modification provision about uh, consumer mortgages, residential mortgages. It's appalling that if you're rich enough in a home, for you know vacations you can do cram downs, but you can't do it on your own dwelling you're a working class person yeah. um, this is the, this crisis overall has been the greatest loss of working class income uh, in 75 years it has uh, absolutely crushed uh, people it is substantially added to overall inequality in the nation and we all know what America is like if you lose your house I mean, this is not a place where the homeless are live in luxury, mm-hmm. to say the least. And if you have kids, um, well, you can see the numbers in the very substantial increases in poverty, and particularly poverty number of uh, kids in poverty. So yes, this has truly awful implications uh, for the American economy, and by the way. It has tremendous implications for the ability to recover. So we have a terrible dilemma on what you do. What we know empirically and through the investigations is that it was overwhelmingly the lenders that put the lies in liar's loans. They're the ones who knew the key ratios they had to hit to maximize the price of selling this mortgage to the secondary market. And that would involve two things, typically. One, it would be depressing the loan-to-value ratio. The loan is the amount of the loan, and the value is the appraisal. And so you uh, scam that ratio, obviously, by inflating the appraisal. We've talked about that. The other key ratio was the debt-to-income ratio. Well, the debt, again, is the amount borrowed, and the income is the borrower's income. So you scam that by greatly inflating the borrower's income. If you do those things as a mortgage broker, and literally the mortgage broker's prior job was frequently flipping burgers, that mortgage broker for what we call a jumbo, that'd be, say, $600,000, $800,000 mortgage in California, that mortgage broker could get a $20,000 fee. So he wasn't about to leave it to the borrower, the unsophisticated borrower, to hit the magic numbers and ratios. Right? That's why the brokers took the lead in these frauds and preparing fraudulent documents. You know, g- given those obvious and extremely perverse incentives and the early warnings from economists that you mentioned before, you know, do you have a sense of me? How did these neoclassical economists get it so wrong in failing to see that fraud was a real problem here? 
Well, under their theory, fraud's impossible. So the famous line is from Easter, Easterbrook and Fischel, Frank Easterbrook and Daniel Fischel. Frank Easterbrook is a Seventh Circuit Justice, former professor uh, at the University of Chicago. Fischel was professor and dean at the University of Chicago, is now at Northwestern. And they have written the key treatise in law and economics on corporate law that has been used to now train a generation of lawyers because it came out in 1991. And it says, and I'm going to get this quotation almost exactly right, that a rule against fraud is not necessary or even particularly important. And the reason is, of course, the efficient market fairy. Because if markets are efficient, well, they can only be efficient if there is no accounting control fraud. Since we know that markets are efficient, there cannot be fraud. Well, if there's no fraud, then markets must automatically exclude fraud. If they automatically exclude it, then it can't depend on rules and regulation and prosecution. There must be something intrinsic to markets. And so they believe this insanity. Now, mind you, uh, Fischel had been an outside expert to three of the worst accounting control frauds in the, related to the savings and loan crisis. And he had tried to apply his theories in the real world. And they blew up entirely. And he doesn't mention that in his book. <laughs> Well, you know, that that's what's so surprising to me. I mean, that these guys were not only observers of, but as you just said, were often involved in, as experts, the SNL crisis. You know, the, the very the very perfect model of the fraud that they disclaim existing and exploding. I mean, why can't these economists learn their lessons in the face of, of undeniable empirical evidence? What's going on here? It's ideological. We call them theoclassical economists. It, it is religion. And as bad as that was, that's not really, <laughs> the, the, because the real problem was Alan Greenspan. Uh, Alan Greenspan believed exactly the same thing about fraud. And he famously told this to uh, Brooksley Bourne, who was then the chair of the Commodities Future Trading Commission, when she wanted to regulate credit default swaps. And your listeners can go uh, to the... Uh, a public television site for the frontline special, The Warning, and see this for free uh, and such. But it was, uh, and Greenspan was so devastating because the great, and this again is a difference between the savings and loan crisis and the current crisis. In the current crisis, the bulk of the liar's loans were made by entities that were not federally regulated. So these are the mortgage banks, these are Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, and such. These were all massive, um, uh, all made massive amounts of liar's loans, endemically fraudulent. The Fed, the Federal Reserve, uh, run by Alan Greenspan, and only the Fed had statutory authority from 1994 on, so well before this crisis, under something called HOEPA, which is Home uh, Ownership and Equity Protection Act, something like that, of 1994, to regulate all mortgage lenders. And people begged 
Greenspan, and then later his successor, Bernanke, to use this authority. And they refused to do so because they were had such a visceral opposition to regulation. And remember, this is long after the FBI warns that there's an epidemic of mortgage fraud. It is after, in the case of Bernanke, the industry warns that there's 90% fraudulent. And to give your listeners a number, by 2006, roughly one-third of all mortgage loans made that year were liar's loans. And remember, a 90% fraud rate. We're talking about well over a million annual cases of mortgage fraud. So uh, they refused at the Fed to use the HOEPA authority, and they only finally used it under congressional pressure in August 2008. Now, again, the bubble blew up in 2006, and the secondary market in uh, liar's loans and other non-prime loans collapsed in mid-2007. So this is closing the barn door after the horses are gone and the barn is burned down two years Mm -hmm. ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got to ask you uh, about something that you said that that struck me as very provocative about the role of these economists that, uh, that either ignored the problem or, in fact, exacerbated it. Uh, you suggest at one point that, you know, the results that you just described, you say the intriguing issue is whether these results are unintended consequences or deliberate. Are you really suggesting that economists are somehow rigging our system to fail, or am I misunderstanding? No, I, I don't think that uh, any of the people that I've mentioned wanted to facilitate the, the frauds. Um, at some level... The degree of hatred for regulation became so severe, I mean, that they would literally prefer the frauds to continue rather than use regulation, right? Again, that's not because, this is more subtle, it's not because they want fraud. I'm not saying that, but they view fraud as less threatening to their world than government regulation. Interesting. And that strikes me as perverse because they see the world as dichotomous. You can either have quote-unquote free markets or you can have government regulation. That's nonsense. And it's then we know it we all know it's nonsense if we simply took it to the blue-collar criminal world. What would happen if you got rid of all the police? I I assume rampant crime. (laughs) Yeah, there'd be a lot of crime, and there'd be a lot of crime in particular taking stuff from richer people. And so we all know that we don't destroy liberty when we have honest cops. We make liberty more possible when we have honest cops. Now, can they be abusive? Of course. Is there reasons for a democracy? Of course. Do you have to be ever vigilant about abuse? Yes, yes, yes. But we all would make the choice, including these economists, to have a police force. Well, the regulators, the financial regulators, are the regulatory cops on the beat. And the key thing is, this, is defeating the Gresham's dynamic. 
again, the Gresham's dynamic is when people who cheat gain a competitive advantage. If cheaters prosper, then market forces become perverse, and they drive the honest accountants, the honest appraisers, the honest lawyers out of the marketplace, and the least honest among us begin to dominate them. Let me give you an example from outside the kind of world. I told you there are many kinds of control fraud. One of the forms of control fraud has to do with selling goods. And so in China, there has long been a scandal involving selling counterfeit infant formula. China has had such experience with these frauds that it introduced a test designed to look for proteins because the primary way that you create fake infant formula is take water and put something chalk-like in it to make it look like formula. But of course it would have no protein levels and hence the Chinese tests. So the frauds responded to the Chinese test by adding melamine. Now melamine has no nutritional value but it creates these protein level hits, and it's a contaminant that causes kidney stones in kids as young as three months old. At least six children were killed, 300,000 Chinese infants were hospitalized. So if people will kill your infant child for a few won, think what can happen where it's just business, right? It's just yeah. finance and doesn't have those kind of moral constraints. So effective regulators don't do all that much, right? We have a limited role, and our primary role should be stopping the frauds who create this Gresham's dynamic. And they don't just create it in the few areas I mean, there were hundreds of thousands of mortgage brokers. These, the big places like Countrywide, Washington Mutual, would have 50,000 firms feeding them these fraudulent loans. 50,000 firms. So they work through creating perverse incentive structures. Yeah, I mean, the, the new battleground of, of regulators trying to uh, to get rid of those uh, perverse incentives, it seems to me to be the, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. I mean, it, it strikes me as though the idea at least has great potential to introduce the kind of, you know, more aggressive regulatory position that, that, that might overcome these problems. Though, you know, also in your writings, you note that this neoclassical economic theory has undermined the very power of regulators to, to deal effectively with crises like, like you did uh, in the SNL era. And you cite three tactics that that neocon uh, are, are the neocons, if we if I may, are, are using uh, to that seem to me to describe exactly what's happening with the CFPB. One, limit the number or quality of regulators. Two, limit the power of the regulators you've got. And three, choose lead regulators who don't believe in regulation. Seems to me the same tactics are being used uh, to bring down the CFPB. Uh, do you think the CFPB boosters can save the institution, or is it doomed? Uh, it's not doomed, but it's also never guaranteed. So 
what I try to get across is any metaphor based on war is a bad metaphor. This is not something where you can win the battle for all time. Frauds have been with us from the beginning, and they'll be with us the end. The question is how much damage they occur. And so you have to be vigilant through all time. And, you know, definitionally, there are going to be failures. <laughs> you, know, you could have regulation, and it will fail. The question is, why do we design it to fail? Which is precisely what we've done. And so um, your listeners can go to the 2003 FDIC annual report, or simply to something like Google Images, and they can pull up the iconic photo that demonstrates what we've been talking about. And it's about Chainsaw Gilleran. This was John Gilleran, who was uh, President Bush's first appointee to run the Office of Thrift Supervision. And he's holding a chainsaw. He's next, standing next to the three leading bank lobbyists in America with huge pruning shears and the deputy head of the FDIC. Uh, who will become his successor as head of the Office of Thrift Supervision. And they are all poised and posed over a pile of federal regulation. And if that's too subtle, the regulations are wrapped up in red tape. Ha ha And, you know, they want to symbolize that they're going to cut through all regulation. And Gilleran wants to symbolize he's not going to be careful about it. He's going to take a chainsaw to it and destroy it. Well, you know, mission accomplished, guys. Um, no regulation can be effective if you put leaders like that in power. Uh, it can be more effective, though, even with those kind of leaders, if you adopt a professionalized culture, a depoliticized professional culture. This is the same reason why, despite all really acute price pressures, you don't see airplanes falling all the time from the skies because you still, to get an airplane released to be flown, the chief engineer personally sign off on that plane moving. And the chief engineer has been brought up in a culture that says, you know how many uh, fatal crashes are acceptable? Zero. And we need that kind of mindset about fraud. Not that there are zero failures of banks, but there should be zero major failures of banks through fraud. How can we achieve that kind of a climate, though, uh, in, in light of the current political system where it seems that these that neoclassical law and economics has been gospel since the 1980s? Uh, you know, it's gospel that has been completely re- refuted by the facts. Right? All of its predictions have failed in the current crisis. So, you know, when paradigms fail, adopt new paradigms that have worked before. And we have been remarkably successful. We were able to use the uh, recipe, the distinctive pattern, to uh, identify every single one of the control frauds in the savings and loan crisis. When we didn't, we were denied enough money to close them, we adopted a rule restricting growth because we realized these were essentially Ponzi schemes. At least they had the vulnerability of a Ponzi scheme. 
that if they couldn't grow rapidly, they would die. In 1990 and 1991, as regional regulators of savings and loans, well, liar's loans started in Orange County in that era. And we said, this is insane. This is maximizes adverse selection, has to lead to disaster, and we killed them by just regular supervisory means. And I must tell you, we didn't think we were some kind of brilliant types to do that. That was obvious, right? Obvious that you shouldn't allow those kinds of loans. Well, what happened? I told you that most of these lenders of liar's loans were not federally regulated. The leading savings and loan voluntarily gave up its federal charter, its federal deposit insurance, and became a mortgage bank instead instead, for the sole purpose of escaping our jurisdiction. We would no longer have jurisdiction over it because, of course, there was no longer any federal deposit insurance or basis for regulation. And their leading competitor among mortgage banks was a husband-wife team that we had removed and prohibited from the savings and loan industry for doing these kinds of loans. So you have to exclude those kind of regulatory black holes as well. And Congress, to its credit, in 1994, passed HOEPA to allow the Fed to close the regulatory black holes. If you put the Alan Greenspans of the world in charge, now remember Alan Greenspan had a history in the savings and loan crisis as well. He was Charles Keating's expert. Charles Keating was the most notorious accounting control fraud in the savings and loan crisis. And, and uh, Keating used Alan Greenspan to personally recruit the senators who intervened with us as regulators and became known as the Keating Five. And Greenspan famously opined in writing on Keating's behalf, that Lincoln's saving posed no foreseeable risk of loss. I'm quoting. It was actually the most expensive failure in the entire savings and loan crisis at $3.4 billion. And along your lines of how can we succeed, I will tell you this positive story. And we can succeed by starting by appointing some of these people right now. I was one of four regional regulators uh, who met with the Keating Five. I, in fact, took the notes of the meeting that led to the Senate ethics investigation. And, of course, we said no to their efforts to intimidate us not to take action against uh, Lincoln Savings. But here's the point. I worked very closely with my three colleagues for years. To this day... I do not know what political party, if any, they are affiliated with. It never mattered to us. We took on prominent Republicans and Democrats every day of the week, and we could care less. Our mission was to the public, just like the engineer's mission when he sends that plane out, or she sends that plane out, is this plane will get safely from one place to the other, or, you know, unless the pilot <laughs> does something really stupid. But it, it right. won't fall because of things that we do mechanically wrong.
Well, I guess we can hope that the CFPB or some other agency uh, can continue to exclude those regulatory black holes, as you say, and and take a page from your book in uh, properly regulating these these uh, horrible. Yeah, it, uh, it is horrible a shame costs. that she uh, Elizabeth Warren is exceptionally good. She is one of the people who got this crisis right early, and we keep on promoting people who got it wrong. You know, so Geithner was a failed Federal Reserve president who was supposed to regulate many of the largest banks in America. He was an abject failure as a regulator, so we promoted him to Treasury Secretary. Bernanke was a complete failure as a regulator, so President Obama reappointed him. President Obama largely left in charge Bush's uh, failed regulators in charge of the banking regulatory agencies. Even today, many of them are run by actings who share the same anti-regulatory ideology. We simply have not cared enough to send the very best. Well, hopefully we can turn that around in the near, near future. That's <laughs> Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this interesting discussion. Thanks very much to Professor Thank Black. Thank you so much. You can listen to or download more than 100 podcasts from our website, abi.org, or from iTunes. Until next time, this is Jason Kilborn saying good day.